This is episode number 296, The World's Toughest Running Feats Fueled by Veganism, with four-time Guinness Book of World Records holder Fiona Oaks. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, expanding the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. To prove that being vegan, you could be strong, you could be healthy, you, you could do great endurance feats, and it wasn't prohibitive to your well-being to be vegan. So I kind of thought, if I can just complete a marathon, compete in one and hopefully complete it, that proves definitively what I want to show the world, that, you know, being plant-based isn't stopping me from functioning in any way. And if I can kind of get around a marathon, which at the time was kind of been billed as the toughest event in the athletes calendar, it's not going to stop you out there from doing anything either. So that's kind of how I fell into running. Today's guest, Fiona Oaks, definitely ticks all of those boxes. Before we get into it, I wanted to tell you about Athletic Greens. Their AG1 supplement is something that I take daily, especially as a professional athlete, especially as a new postpartum mom, to check all the boxes and make sure that I'm not searching for all these different supplement bottles to make sure that I'm getting what I need. I like AG1 because it's more than just vitamins and minerals, but it also has probiotics, superfoods, and adaptogens. Adaptogens like ashwagandha have been products that I've been using over the years because I've noticed a difference when using them. But I've always been a little bit nervous because it's incredibly hard to find anything that is NSF certified safe for sport. So these products have been tested by third party so you don't have to worry about a banned substance being in this product. And even if you're not a professional athlete getting drug tested, which is the majority of people, knowing that the products that you're taking are safe is pretty important because the whole supplement industry tends to be pretty unregulated. If you're traveling, if you're feeling a little bit meh, if you're looking for an edge, or if you just aren't sure if you're getting everything that you need, the AG1 supplement by Athletic Greens is a good place to start. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. And all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Sonia. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Sonia to take ownership over your health, support this podcast, and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So let's talk about an extraordinary human, Fiona Oaks. Fiona is an elite marathon runner who has completed over 100 marathons and finished in the top 20 in two of the world's major marathon series, winning the main start and placing in the top 20 in the Great North Run. She holds four Guinness Book of World Records, four, in endurance events, including being the fastest woman to run a marathon on every continent. Think about Antarctica and places like that. But Fiona doesn't consider herself a great runner. All of her runs and accolades are in service of a greater purpose, care and love for animals. Another one of her world records in the Guinness Book of World Records is she has run the fastest half marathon in an animal costume. This woman is a force to be reckoned with. And if you haven't guessed, she is a vegan. Helping others understand the reasons behind her lifestyle drives her to participate in these really epic runs around the world. She became the first vegan woman to complete the Marathon des Saab, which is a race that is in the Sahara Desert, where you have to carry all of your food, all of your gear, everything on your back. 
This includes running across sand dunes, dealing with things like sandstorms, dealing with things like sand getting in your shoes and rubbing away skin. There's a lot that happens at this race, and she's done it twice. And in 2013, she won the North Pole Marathon and its sister race, the Antarctic Ice Marathon. So she's done all of the extremes, and she does this to just bring awareness to animals and also to her animal sanctuary, Tower Hill Stables Animal Sanctuary, which she founded in 1996. Fiona gets up at 3.30 every single morning to take care of hundreds of animals and has a personal relationship with each and every one of them. So her passion is unbridled. She is an incredible human. Fiona is the subject of a documentary called Running for Good and is the author of a book of the same name. In this podcast, Fiona and I talk about her pursuit to promote veganism, her career as a runner, and her love of animals. As you'll hear, her approach is unique to her, and it is not what you would expect from an elite athlete. And you're going to learn a lot of really interesting stories and just get an idea of how passionate and also how authentic this woman is. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to her about the mental side of sport, which is a huge part of this podcast. So we talked about the mental side. We talked about the vegan side. We talked about all of the inspiration So it definitely, as I said at the start, ticks all the boxes of high performance and this podcast. Speaking of high performance, make sure that you check out Inside Tracker if you haven't done so yet. You can do that at insidetracker.com slash Sonia, but Inside Tracker is the guide illuminating your own path towards your personal best. They offer a clearer picture of what you've never had before, and you get to see what's going on inside your body. So you get some blood work done. You get a massive report of all of these very impactful biomarkers that impact things like your sleep, your energy, your immune system, and improving your personal performance using an algorithm and evidence-backed research to tweak your lifestyle, whether it be adding in certain foods, regardless of what diet you prescribe to, whether it be supplements, whether it be adding in more rest days or sleep. They make personalized recommendations to you based on what your map looks like under the hood. They also look at your DNA and can give you a score for your inner age. And that is something that can be tweaked. And they've worked with longevity experts in order to figure out what types of actions people need to take to make the most of their genetics and the biometric data that's available. They are a well-established company that's been around for over 10 years. And as I've mentioned before, I've been using their blood test since 2017 And as a new mom, now that I am not pregnant anymore and I am starting to train and try to get back into all of the things, I'm really excited again to have access to Inside Tracker because I use their ultimate test to see where I'm at whenever my body is rapidly changing, whenever I'm changing and trying to add in all of these inputs. And I've trusted them again since 2017 and gotten a lot of insight into my health. So go to InsideTracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off all of their tests. I highly recommend doing it maybe even twice because then you get to see, number one, where you stand with all of these biomarkers, but then you get to make changes and see improvement. And there is nothing more motivating than taking action on your own, having that autonomy, and then seeing the benefits right in front of you and seeing the data and the results of those actions. So go to InsideTracker.com slash Sonia to check it out. All right, let's get into this episode with Fiona Oaks. Fiona, we were just chatting and I wanted to hit record because you were already saying amazing, inspiring things. So how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm doing good. Thank you. Yeah, how has the last uh, couple of years, you know, you, you have your animal sanctuary, but you also have traveled a great amount around the world and done all of these amazing events. How has the last couple of years affected you? 
Yeah, yeah, it's been a bit like taking cold turkey from running. It really has. It's kind of, um, yeah, I think you've just got all to your perspectives. I mean, actually, just when the pandemic hit, uh, just before that, I was due to go to Marathon de Sable again. And literally the week before it was cancelled. And that was really, really tough, actually, because, you know, like when you're doing an event and you are living in that moment six months prior to the event, everything is focused on that week or that day. And that's the main goal. And suddenly that's taken away from you. But for something that's completely out of your control, it was difficult. So I figured the only way I had to get around that was to actually run the event virtually or actually just locally so I literally got up I found one of the old road books from MDS and I ran it you know so um I completed I got the distance out of the way I got the event out of the way even though I wasn't actually in the desert and bizarrely enough um in the UK for that first lockdown that we had it was like totally deserted out there I mean like we had beautiful weather actually for April so it was kind of warm it was deserted I looked up at the sky there were no chemtrails and I thought it's not a whole lot different to actually being in the desert the things that I craved uh, running in the wilderness actually I found on my own doorstep um so I got through that but after I think it's just kind of dragged on and on and on and will it or won't it and you know but you always have to find a way of something good out of something bad that's what I've learned so um yeah we're getting there and and I don't know what it's like you know where you are but now in the UK we've taken away all restrictions and you know things are getting pretty much back to the new normal so you know you just live day to day the animals keep me going I mean I I can never be one of those people that stays indoors and hides under the duvet seven days a week I've got to be out there at 3 30 in the morning looking after the animals so I think that keeps me strong both mentally and physically now there's something I want to get into some of these really fun stories that you have about your adventures and your purpose, but something that I wanted to ask you was about identity because you've set four Guinness book of world records. Like you had some amazing adventures around the world and you've made such a great example out of what it means to be vegan. But aside from all of those things that you've done, if you took all of that away, who is Fiona? Um, Fiona is just a, a little kid who loves animals. Really, I mean, just you know, it's just it's just that person who just loves animals and is desperate to help them, desperate to nurture them, but desperate to be around them, and just very innocently kind of forges on the best way I know how to make a difference. Nothing I've done defines me particularly, apart from my love of animals. That will that's the core, the root of me, everything that drives me. The other things are just on the periphery. I mean, you know, I, I, unlike you, I mean, I, I I'm not a great sports person. I don't consider myself to be even a runner I'm just applying a discipline or to something that I thought could function for the animals so I didn't I mean running is just totally the wrong sport for me especially with my injury but I I do it for a reason and uh, the reason is always the animals whether it be I mean I'm a firefighter as well so I I, part-time so I, I just cut when I joined the fire brigade it was just how can I make this kind of work to benefit the animals? And it was introducing certainly women in it at that time, but certainly a vegan woman into a forum that necessarily wouldn't have been exposed to veganism. So that's kind of everything I do. That's just who Fiona is. Yeah. So you're deep down, you're a girl that loves animals. So how did that love of animals translate into 
you know, the things that you've done in your life. Like you started as a kid and realized like, Hey, like I don't want to eat animals. I love animals. And then how did that grow from there into who you are today? Yeah, I mean, it grew, uh, I think it's like it kind of been organically growing with me and I've never actually stopped actually funnily enough until the pandemic to actually sit down and analyse why I have actually done things. It's been full throttle Fiona all the way. Just go with, go with it, go with it. If it seems like a good idea, go with it. Um, I wouldn't particularly have chosen otherwise to be. I wouldn't have made a decision to be running at the North Pole or in deserts, particularly if it hadn't just a gut feeling that this is a great idea for the animals. So I went vegetarian when I was three years old. After that, started to ask mum questions more, you know, like where do the other products that we take from animals come from and why do they choose to give them to us? Very, very lucky at the time to have a mum who wasn't vegetarian even, but chose to tell me the truth and to explain um we were very lucky, actually, that um, back, it, this was a long time ago, this was decades ago, my mom had a role model in that her piano teacher had been a vegan lady since the 1950s. So my mum had kept in contact with her um, because mum was a pianist before she became a nurse. And she was able to articulate to my mother in adult terms what I was feeling as a child. So she was a great mentor to my mum, something that was quite unusual because I, I grew up in a little provincial town. My dad was a minor and, you know, it, was, it there certainly wasn't some bohemian existence where we were exposed to veganism or even vegetarianism. After that, it was always basically a dream to have a sanctuary to be able to care for animals physically, but I never thought it'd be a reality because I just don't come from that sort of family. I mean, certainly I don't come from a, a wealthy family where land ownership of land was a possibility. The dream of having a sanctuary came as uh, the actual reality of it came as a as an accident, actually unfor- an unfortunate accident to one of the horses I'd rescued who was keeping at a farm. The farmer actually allowed people when I was at work to go into the field and shoot rabbits. Oscar, who was the racehorse that I was rehabilitating, um, had an accident. He was at the vet for 13 weeks. I thought he w- we were going to lose him. And at that point, it was kind of, we'd been standing on a precipice. You know, we, we really can't continue with this model, but I don't know how else to change it. I don't know how to change it. And Oscar's accident was that kind of precipitated to say, you know, we've got to, we've got to do something. So my whole family rallied round to try and raise the funds for even a deposit for a place, a small place with a bit of land where I could take the animals and look after them myself. And I do tell a funny story that I had a great aunt, Auntie Nancy, who was 98 years old and had her funeral money in a sock under her bed. Uh, and she said, just take it and give it to Fiona and let's just go with this and try and make it happen for her. This is a lifelong dream. And that's back in 1996. I didn't actually start Tower Hill Stables as an ongoing sanctuary or a business concern. It was a place of sanctuary for the animals that I'd already rescued. And it kind of grew from there. So for a few years, I just continued to rescue animals. Now I could like take in the animals that you can't put at livery yards of farms, they're cattle and pigs and sheep. But after a while, I suddenly realised geez, you know, this place is very limited. It's not massive and I can't help every animal in the world by doing this. So I need to do something a little bit more. And I was kind of fiddling about with ideas of what I could do. I was very, very much constrained by man hours, the time I've got available to me, because obviously I was caring for the animals and also limited finances. 
And that's when kind of running cropped up back in, you know, the early noughties uh, in the UK. Um, Paula Radcliffe was the talk of the town because she was doing flamboyantly well in marathon running. And it got kind of all the kind of hashtags, if you like, attached to it that I needed to prove that being vegan, you could be strong, you could be healthy, you, you could do great endurance feats. And it wasn't prohibitive to be your well-being to be uh, to be vegan. So I kind of thought if I can just complete a marathon, compete in one and hopefully complete it, that proves definitively what I want to show the world that, you know, being plant-based isn't stopping me from functioning in any way. And if I can kind of get around a marathon, which at the time was kind of been billed as the toughest event in the athletes calendar, um, it doesn't it's not going to stop you out there from 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 doing anything either. So that's kind of how I fell into running. It was a challenge because back as in my teenage years, I'd had these surgeries. I'd been told that I would never walk properly again, let alone be able to run. So it was just a question of seeing if I could. I knew I was relatively fit and healthy because um, previous to this, I joined the fire brigade. So that's quite a demanding thing to do. So it was just kind of get out there and see what you can do, girl. That's that's all it was about. And I never anticipated that a couple of years after starting running, I would be standing next to Paula Radcliffe on the start line of the elite race in the London Marathon. That was kind of crazy for me because, you know, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm punching way above my weight here. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just obviously physically being vegan was of no detriment to me whatsoever but I think it actually helped me mentally because I haven't got any talent for running it it can be strong because I, I had a very great purpose for being out there other than just trying to do a PB or win a trophy or get a medal there was something much more important that money couldn't buy that was driving me and I think that that really really helped me yeah, being driven by a really strong purpose. It sounds like that's your fire. It also yeah. sounds like you have an incredibly supportive family. And also, even though they weren't vegetarian or vegan, a compassionate family, like within, in and of itself, like everybody wants to help everybody, you know, find their happiness and find their purpose. But I wanted to ask you, what were you doing? You said you had joined the fire brigade before you ran your first marathon. How old were you? And what other physical activities were you doing, if any? I was doing uh, rowing. I used to do rowing when I went to college uh, because it, I was in college in Oxford and rowing was a big, big part of Oxford life and cycling. But when I got the sanctuary back in 1996, all kind of sport kind of stopped because um, I was busy with the animals all the time. And, um, you know, being out on a bike or getting to a lake, it takes a lot of time. It took me away from the sanctuary and I just couldn't afford it. Um, I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s then. And I was actually out um, one day sort of jogging, sort of limping jogging. And a guy pulled up next to me and he said, oh, you, you look relatively fit. And I was like, sorry, <laughs> sorry. And um, it was the local firefighter. And he said, look, we're desperate for recruits. And we can't get people to, to, to pass the bleep test, basically. I've seen you running about or jogging about. He said, would you would you consider joining the fire brigade and being part of the local community? And actually, it served many purposes. 
I am kind of an active person that I like to do that sort of thing. Some probably women wouldn't be interested in that sort of lifestyle. It suits me better. I, I am, you know, much more physically, got, I'm very strong and I, I like to be out there kind of outside so it doesn't bother me like rolling hoses and getting in with the guys and, and doing that sort of thing. But also being vegan and running an animal sanctuary in a farming community I kind of probably, I, I wouldn't say I was unpopular, but I was kind of a little bit ostracized from the community and people that what's that kind of weird person doing down there. So it kind of made me a little bit more included in, in the local community, which might, people might say, well, why would you want to be included particularly? But obviously running a sanctuary, I have to liaise with certain groups of people for things like hay and straw and the stuff that it needs to actually run run the sanctuary. So being in the fire brigade and being, being the first port of call if anybody is in trouble kind of helped me in that respect. Also, I mean, it was something that I could do basically when the animals didn't need me. So I tend to be on call in the middle of the night or at the weekends when I've got a little bit more time. And it brought in extra funds to the sanctuary. So it was kind of a win-win-win thing. And actually, when I actually got involved in it, I went down to the local um, station just to see if it would be for me and if I could actually get in. And I kind of went to the induction course. And I remember that I was rolling out the hoses and it was a very, very hot day. And um, the station officer um, brought out a tray of tea, but it had, unfortunately, had milk in it. And I declined and he said, look, you need a drink, just you just drink the tea, basically. And uh, I said, look, I can't, I'm sorry, why not? It's just a cup of tea. And I said, look, I'm, I'm vegan. And um, he just pushed his face into mine quite in a hostile way and said, vegan, the last one of those we had here lasted three hours. But let me tell you now, that was a man. And I thought, okay, well, check out this vegan chick because she's staying longer. And um, I passed the course and uh, I joined the brigade. And um, as I say, it just gave me an opportunity to introduce in a non-confrontational way uh, something which people back 25 years ago had not necessarily been exposed to, which was plant-based living. And uh, yeah, so um, that's why I kind of, you know, got spotted and that's that's where it started. And uh, from then on, it, it kind of grew. And um, after that, I took more seriously to my running uh, when I thought that it was something that I could possibly do. But this is, you know, I, I say to people, I'm, I'm nothing special and I'm certainly not telling people, you know, this is the way you've got to categorise your life. You know, you've got to go vegan at six. You've got to have an animal sanctuary in your mid-20s. You've got to join the fire brigade. You've got to like that. It's not like that. It's just if anybody wants to listen to what I've got to say and they find, find it informative, interesting, inspiring, that's great. But it's just a model that I've used. And you can take that model and project it onto anything to be as effective as you want for whatever cause you want. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Your model is you're somebody who has a lot of, of courage. And like you said, you were ostracized a little bit in your community and you have thick skin and you're like, no, I'm, I don't care that this isn't the the mainstream way, or if people disagree, this is what I'm doing. So having that people find that really inspiring that you stand up for what you're, what you believe in and that you just go after something that is important to you for a much greater purpose. And I think everybody wants to feel that way in their lives, regardless if it's, you know, an animal sanctuary, regardless if it's running, like that's, that's what everybody wants to feel. And getting to hear your story is really inspiring for a lot of people. I think for that's one of the reasons. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's quite a difficult today, certainly in the past few years, for people to really understand how unaware and kind of even confrontational the vegan issue was back two, three decades ago. It really wasn't popular. And indeed, people ask with my running, did you have a coach? Did you have anything like that to help you? No, and I genuinely couldn't get anyone to help me with a sporting forum because of the veganism. And their mentality was, okay, you might have a little bit of potential. We can see a little bit going on there, but your diet is going to prohibit you. It was very much, you know, you've got to have meat and dairy very much for that, you know, the protein, all that issue that coaches, certainly in the UK, were following at the time. So I kind of said, you know, well, the diet is not up for negotiation. That's the only reason I'm out there. So all my running was kind of learned trial and error and this was at a time before you could kind of google search you know some three-hour training plan or anything like that you've got to literally go out there and see what worked for you and I kind of look back now and I think that is the whole reason that we started Vegan Runners back in 2004 and that's probably one of my proudest achievements within the running um as I said I, I, I kind of did quite well quite quickly I suppose and um I was running in an affiliated club, as you had to, to get on the start lines of some of the races. And uh, one of the guys that was in the club with me, it was the Vegetarian Cycling and Athletics Club, said at the time, hey, Fiona, you do realise you're going to be, you know, on that elite start line. This is a golden opportunity to get the word vegan out there to an audience that probably has not been exposed to it in the past. And that was literally 45 minutes ahead of the main field. You're out there, but you've got to be in an affiliated club closing. You can't just turn up on some of these big starts, as you know yourself, with like whatever you want written on your drum, but you've got to be like your sponsors because the actual sponsors, particularly of the London Marathon, were very, very protective of their sponsorship of races so you know when you when you go to the start lines or just before you know you go to the elite enclosures and they're there measuring the lettering on your jersey or even on your socks that you're not inadvertently trying to sneak a bit of sponsorship in there so the way to get it out there was like put this on a club vest and get out there and run. And that's, you know, it was so effective because, um, you know, you're kind of going along and you you can't hear much in the crowds as you're whisking past, but they'd be shouting, come on the vegan lady or come on vegan. And that was kind of what the club was all about like 18 years ago. And uh, people just didn't know what veganism was. Now it's probably the biggest club by numbers and both running and non-running membership. But back at that time, it's like, what is vegan what is what is this you know now you go you can go anywhere Norway you can go anywhere around the world and even if people you know don't they probably much that oh I ran with somebody in vegan runners back in you know Australia or something so the club's grown and grown and grown but that was the pain it's just I'm just a very childlike kind of person that puts these simple equations together and and kind of hey that would work you know that would be a great way of promoting what I believe in in a positive peaceful and proactive way because that's what I'm all about I don't I'm not confrontational I don't want to go in there and stand and shout and I couldn't go around you know like at the Berlin Marathon tell every one of the 50,000 runners hey I'm vegan and you can be vegan too but making a statement that you're out there on the front grid with the best in the world that's kind of making that statement for you yeah. Leading by example is something yeah. that you've done in spades. I'm wondering, so for those who aren't familiar, like your marathon PR is 238. Is that correct? 
Yeah. Like you're the fat, you're, you're Guinness book of world records. You're the fastest female to run a marathon on each continent. You're the fastest female to run a marathon on each continent. Plus the North pole. I'm reading these off your website. You're the fastest female to run a marathon in each continent. Oh, I already said plus, plus the North pole fastest half marathon in an animal costume. I love that. I, I want to hear that story in a minute. And, but you say you're not talented and you also said I've, I improve relatively quickly. So if you don't think you're talented, what would talent look like if that isn't talent? I suppose within the running forum, I think it's very important for me to keep my feet on the ground. And I tell you a funny story. I went out. Okay. So when I started running, it was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was doing at all. I just thought, go out and run a bit further every day and you'll get good. You know, that's all I thought. You'll get better. And uh, after a while, okay, I got some pretty good results. And um big race organizers started to invite me to events. So one of those was Jos Hermans. He invited me to the Amsterdam Marathon. And Jos was coaching and managing Haile Gabrislasi at the time, who was going for the world record in this particular race. So I have this bizarre life where one minute I am literally mucking out horses. The next minute I'm running into the house, desperately searching for anything that looks like resembling a pair of socks to get my, my trainers on to go out for a run. Back in the house, Willie's back on, back out. I don't think about running very much at all other than when I'm actually doing it or just before I'm preparing to do it. So I'm, I'm, I arrive in Amsterdam and I'm lit, I'm a starstruck, absolutely starstruck. I know I'm going to be in the race with Haile Gabrislasi. It's my hero. And then the next thing, in walks Haile Gabrislasi into the hotel forum. And I'm thinking, oh, this is real. This is like one minute I'm getting off on a plane as Fiona, next minute you're an elite athlete at technical meetings. And even at these technical meetings, I'm kind of sitting at the back with my head down, looking at all these flamboyantly talented East African runners, thinking technically... I just want to finish alive from this next, you know, from this race. And they're like discussing when they're going to get, you know, they're going to put in a push at 30K. And I'm thinking the only thing that will need pushing at 30K is me. You know, I mean, I'm literally hanging on by the skin of my teeth. And um, so um, I got the email that Yoss sent me and it was like to go to sign on for the race. You don't need to go to the Olympic Stadium. Elites, you know, get your number in the hotel and that kind of thing. So it's like, wow, you know. And I turn up and it's my big moment. Highly said, it's my big moment. And I said, you know, to the guy behind the desk, you know, I'm here to collect my number. And he kind of looked up and he kind of looked me up and down and went, sign-ons at the Olympic Stadium. And I went, oh, oh I've just completely misread it all. I'm just looking like fully. So I fumbled in my pocket to get the email out that he'd sent me, Yasser sent me. And it definitely said, you know, sign-on at the Elite Hotel. And the guy just looked at me and said, but you're on the elite start. <laughs> Embarrassing. I, I do look a bit like compared to the other, what I would call talented runners, uh, runners, I look like the love child of the Michelin man and Mrs. Blobby. I really do. Compared, I mean, I'm like, I, you know, when they're scanning along at the start, you know, and now, you know, the elite runners are all gathered here. And I'm thinking, I hope you've got a wide camera angle on that because he's going to need it to fit me in compared to some of these kind of, still fight elegant little little runners that you know anyway because I'm I'm not conventionally built for a marathon um so I guess that's what talent looks like to me and um I was very very lucky to spend the evening with Harley that day on the Friday and he asked me if I wanted to go out with his training group that were going to be warming up for the race the next day so I met him downstairs and we went out and you know like when you're hanging on the back with your eyeballs hanging out trying to breathe and look cool and speak <laughs> and you're just going giving yes 
no, yes, it one word answers. That kind of what talent looks like to me. So I know that I am not flamboyantly blessed. Let's put it like that. I am very determined and I, I, I joke aside and I say to people, I don't think I've had much physical talent, but I've had a lot of determination. And I think the real top level are the people that have got talent and determination. A lot of people have talent, but they waste it. They don't put the effort in. I've always known that I've really got to put the effort in to get anywhere. So I've been the 100 mile a week metronomical kind of won't miss a session, won't miss a beat, you know, got to do that because I've known that I'm lacking in other departments. So, yeah, I, I think my main mantra or, or, or message to people is don't stress about, you know, kind of embrace your weaknesses and learn to make them your strengths if you like so I've known that I'm challenged physically but I'm very very driven mentally yeah so you attribute that like most of your success to determination consistency and mental toughness and then this this huge sense of purpose yeah and I'm very very lucky actually to have had a body that will you know because with the, with the marathon is very much an equation if you can put a good training block together and you're blessed on the day with not injury, ill health and good weather conditions. It's like you've deposited these funds, if you like, these miles in the bank. That is the day you can go and withdraw them. And unless you get really, really bad luck, you should pretty much know what you can do if you've put the training in. I am a person that I, I've never, I mean, I've never had a massage or anything like that. I don't go for any of the fancy gadgets or the, I, I just don't have the time or the money for them. I, I've never actually taken anything on board during a marathon other than plain water even. I know it's been a bit embarrassing sometimes because they'll, sometimes at races they'll come and ask you to put your water bottles out or your special drinks that you're going to need for the race and I have been known to just put plain water out because I felt too embarrassed to not put anything out it's been you know like the big moment when you can actually pick up from the elite drink stations yeah. and I'm like you know I've just put like little red ribbons around plain water in bottles because I felt too embarrassed because, and the, the, the idea behind that is if you don't race with it if you don't train with it don't race with it so it's no good like putting like loads of gels and stuff and uh, such like out but yeah, I mean, I am a very, very basic kind of individual, but I have learned to exploit the free and easy things that um, a lot of people tend to overlook. I'm very, very disciplined with my diet. Um, I only eat one meal a day and um, that kind of works. A lot of people sort of will ask, what do you eat? And I, it's without sounding too crude, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of also functioning on not what I just consume, but what comes out kind of thing. Because so you don't want stomach cramps in a race. You've got to be very, very prepared for those little tiny things that make a hell of a difference. Because, you know, if you if you get challenged in, in the stomach department, let's put it like that, in, you know, a marathon, it doesn't matter how fit you are, you're not going to run your best race. So I've always focused on the kind of things that many people actually overlook. It's, it's kind of got me where pretty much where I wanted to be. Um, as I say, I've never taken, I take my training very seriously in terms of the fact that if I'm not going to be out there giving it 100%, I'm not going to bother because it's just no point. Um, but I don't take myself very seriously, especially not with my running, um, because as I say, um, I leave it to the professionals and I know where I stand in that. And I've, I've run with 
very very talented runners and that's when you see them like you realize oh <laughs> i feel a bit embarrassed being next to them but you know i've earned my place on races and i've been able to do that and i've been blessed to do that and i've been, had a body and mind that's strong enough to enable me to do that have you decided on some of these incredibly difficult races like the marathon de Sa- marathon de sable or you know running on the north pole or in antarctica I, I never really decided on them. I kind of fell into them, actually. Um, whole purpose of the running was to promote veganism. Originally, I did it. Uh, I realized it was going to be a tough challenge in terms of what actually it takes to run a half decent marathon, a sub three, a sub two fifty. So I kind of thought, is it worth it? Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just focus on two races a year. Uh, the spring and the fall, and I'm going to do the big marathons, do the big races, because if you can get a top 20 place in London, in Berlin, top 10 in Amsterdam, it's kind of something you can deliver very quickly to people, rather than saying, oh, I won the Notley Park 10K. You know, it's a bit, I came eighth in the Amsterdam Marathon. It's got a lot more impact to it. Um, also, it, was, um, it wasn't going to cost me any money because I didn't have any money because all my money goes to the sanctuary. People were inviting me to races. We'll pay your expenses. You pay your race. Just come and run in our race. Okay, that's great. After a while, I realized that I pretty much run as fast as I could. I couldn't do any better on the road. It wasn't really attracting what I wanted and the reason I was out there. People were willing to talk about the firefighting, willing to talk about the fact I've got no kneecap and I was told I couldn't run, let alone walk properly, willing to focus on the fact that I've got an animal sanctuary. Didn't really, even though I was wearing it on my vest, want to talk about the veganism. So I thought, okay, I'm going to just drop the tier of races. I'll try and win races, go around the world, do smaller races, try and win them, see if that works. It did to a certain extent. I got a load of trophies, but I didn't get the attention for the veganism that I wanted. It wasn't, they weren't really talking about being vegan. And that's really what I wanted to bring into the conversation. It's so frustrating um, that you're like, it, yeah, yeah, crushing it at the top level at all these yeah. things. And people are just omitting that part. And that was the whole reason you it. were there. Exactly. I mean, you know, I've you know, I've won races before now. I've, I've been featured in like national newspapers, voted uh, Inspirational Woman of the Year in the Daily Mail, which is a national paper in the UK. So my mum runs out and buys 50 copies of this paper and we get it home and we're flicking through and it was like, but it hasn't mentioned the fact you're vegan. It just doesn't talk about that. And that's, uh... so anyway, one of my friends, a runner, uh, I call him a friend. I, I, I seriously wonder if he was a friend because he actually suggested, look, you've done done all these fast road races. Why don't you do Marathon Sable back in 2012? This is supposed to be the toughest foot race on the planet. If you can do that, it's definitive proof that as a vegan, as a woman, you can do anything. So I kind of thought, yeah, okay, I'm going to give that a go. Didn't really look into what it was, actually. I mean, I just knew it was some tough race, but hey, I've run 238 in a marathon. How tough can this race be? Turned out to be brutal. It was nothing like running 238 on the road. And the worst of it was the week before that race, I actually fractured two toes. So I was now faced with going out, trudging across the desert for like seven days with an enormous backpack in the appalling heat with this massively swollen foot that I could hardly get into my shoe before I went out there. Um, so it swelled even more in the heat to the point where by day four, you could see the bones sticking out my little toe. And I'm still trudging on thinking, please don't let anybody know that I'm sick because they'll pull me out of the race. And I really want to finish this race to prove that 
as an ethical vegan. And that was kind of important to me, the ethical side of it, because although it, obviously my food was vegan for the race and there wasn't the expedition food available at the time, you know, the lightweight stuff. So I've got this massive pack full of practically tins of beans. My, my sleeping bag and everything, my clothing was uh, you know, also uh, ethically so. So everybody else was whipping out these like tiny little, you know, downfilled uh, sleeping bags. And I got this mother of a kind of ex army serverless massive thing. The pack was practically bigger than me. It was 30 litres. It was drowning me. It's not like I had the hunchback of Notre Dame carrying it. And I got this, uh, this um, broken toes. So it was, it was a real, real challenge. I, and always entering along, I remember at times, it was, it was brutal. Um, saying, I bet they focus it now about me being vegan if I don't finish the Marathon Sable. And that's why I found the media, if ever veganism cropped up, it was negatively, not positively. And I've always carried that little bit of a burden that I wanted to do well for the animals, but I, it was always very much of a tightrope that if I didn't do well or I didn't complete, I felt that the veganism would be focused on for the wrong reasons. So, so for instance, saying, oh, she probably broke her toes because she got brittle bones because she's vegan. No, 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 I haven't. A horse stood on them the week before I was due to come out here. So, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, it was a great big animal that stood on my foot. So it wasn't not anything to do with, you know, moving vegan. So I did, the, I completed it and I, I did relatively well in the race, actually. And I loved it. Even though it was brutal, it was just like, oh, what am I doing? It was just me. It was like I'd fallen into my niche with running. And um, I, I kind of, during that race, I affected a rescue of a woman who was really struggling. She had to pack up. Because of that, the race said, look, if you want to come back next year and hopefully without broken toes, we'll give you a place to come back next year and see what you can do. But in the meantime, the same friend who suggested I did that said, look, but you've done it. You've got the medal. You've, you've done that race. Why don't you do the polar marathons? And I'm thinking, well, what the heck are they? Um, and I thought, well, it's called the North Pole Marathon, but it cannot be. There cannot be a marathon at the North Pole because that's stupid. Even for me, that's just like ridiculous. And uh, I kind of looked into it. It wasn't going to happen. There was a marathon at the North Pole, but it was very expensive to enter. And I thought, well, no, it's never going to happen. It kind of was niggling away at me, though. I thought, well, if you want to promote veganism, and you want to say how strong you are and how able you are to do anything as a vegan, put together North Pole and Marathon and say, I've completed that. It's surely got to prove what I want to do. Um, anyway, I got offered a place in the race, so I shot up to the North Pole. I, I still couldn't believe I was actually at the North Pole trudging around a marathon, um, but for sure I was. I won the race. I did really well in it, actually. I surprised myself because the one thing is with my knee, I'm okay to run on the flat, on the tarmac. But as soon as you start going off terrain, I was very, very worried about dislocating it because that's the thing I do very, very easily. I dislocate it. I'm going to stop you for a second because people don't know what like about your knee. So can you tell people about your knee? Yeah, uh, during my teenage years, I just developed an orthopedic problem. Um, won't go into it. I had 17 surgeries. I was told I wouldn't walk properly again, let alone be able to run. I do, In fact, I didn't realise how much I do limp when I run until I saw the horrendous footage of the film, which Keegan made. And I was, I, I just was doing everything to not watch until I went to the premiere and Rich Roll literally dragged me by the ponytail, sat me down next to him and said, watch it. Because when I'd arrived to, to watch uh, the, the premiere, 
Rich came over to me and said, you know, congratulations, you must be very proud of it. I said, don't know, I haven't seen it yet. And he went, you, you haven't seen the film? And Keegan had been sending me little bits. And I kept saying, just say they're all right. Just say they're all right, because I just didn't want to watch myself on screen. And then I found myself watching myself on a great big screen, which was even worse. And um, I thought, OK, calm down. You're in the film auditorium. It's full. But let's face it, nobody's here for you, Fiona. They're here for Keegan and for Rich Roll. They're not here to about you. So let's calm down. How bad can you look? You are in the desert. You've got all the gear on. You've got a great cinematography. You've got a brilliant narrator. It can't be that bad, can it? So then when I'm peeping, when I'm appearing, I thought it can be that bad. You look awful. There's this little little kind of dwarfy figure like limping away out the desert. And I realised how horrible I look when I run. In fact, I did actually know that um, I look horrible when I run, but I hadn't realised how horrible because I went to another race and um, I won it and I, I'm collecting my trophy. And one of the guys there, came over to me and said, I thought it was you, Fiona. I haven't seen you for ages, but when I saw you running, I knew it was you because <laughs> you're limping. But, yeah, so I fell into – I've just fallen into these races. I didn't – it's not been a burning goal of me to go to the North Pole and run a marathon. It isn't my lifelong ambition to go to Antarctica. And I will say on a, on a serious note, I actually feel really guilty for having gone and done those things because – when I was at the North Pole, for the quicker runners, if it was possible, um, they offered you to take you to the actual physical North Pole. They make the camp and where the base is as near to the geographic North Pole as they can to land a plane. If the ice is not thick enough, they can't land the plane. So it can be a few kilometres from the actual North Pole where the course is. It's still on, um, uh, on the Arctic and it's still pretty airy scary. So when we flew over, the chopper was over there, one of the Russian guys actually just nudged me and said, look down there. And um, there was a polar bear. And I had no idea that the, the polar bears came that far in. I just, I had no idea the tenuous state. This is 2013 of the polar ice cap. And he said to me that um, he'd been working as research between Antarctica and, and the Arctic for years. And his I, his thought was that the, um, the North Pole would no longer be under ice in 10 years time. That's how tenuous it was, even 10, that was nearly 10 years ago. I felt bad for going. I felt bad for um, kind of trespassing into the territory of Antarctica. It was only to try and make a point. It, I'm a running, a, a genuinely, genuinely tried on the road. I tried with all sorts of things to, to engender interest in veganism, not just for the diet, not just for the animals, but for well-being, but the well-being of the planet, for other individuals on this planet, and then knock on of the well-being of myself, how lucky I was and how fit I was and able I was to keep going, keep doing these events and the versatility and just to encourage people to say, if you make, it's not a sacrifice to be a vegan, it's actually a blessing. And, you know, you, you do get people who say, mm, we're all having a piece of cake, you can't have any. And you say, no, I can, I can have it. I just choose not to. That's the difference. And, um, yeah, so the events have never been, it's been literally a strategy I've been using or a creative 
way of promoting veganism. It's not been, oh, what's on my bucket list next? It's never been like that for me. The only thing that I, I, I do enjoy in a bizarre way, the, the, um, the ultra stage races, because they bring so much more perspective to life. The first time I did Marathon de Sable, I, I'd never been in a situation of water depletion and water poverty. I mean, they, they really do push you to the limit out there. And, you know, when you get back and you're looking at things like the miracle that is the tap that you can turn on and water comes out of, the, the miracle of having a choice of food, having enough food. And you realise that if you use these, um, it's it's an insult to those who have no food and no water to say that I've tr- I've seen what they see, because you haven't. At any point, you can put your hand up and say, look, I want to go back to the five-star hotel that awaits me in Wazazad. But if you always have them at this at the forefront of your mind that people are actually living like this throughout the world because of the choices we are making in the Western world, it enables you, it gives you that hunger to keep going, keep fighting for them. And I must admit, I do love being alone. I love being in the wilderness. I love being with my own thoughts. I love being without gadgets. I love being without social media, phones, anything like that. Just you, yourself, raw and pure, getting from A to B with literally your whole worldly possessions on your back. And at the time, now I think people are getting a a little bit more. But 10 years ago when I was doing it, people were saying, well, you must be bonkers. No, I'm not bonkers. I'm not balmy. Well, and they're trying to explain it. I said, look, if you stopped in the race and somebody said to you, here, come over here, do you want this gold bar? You'd look at it and you'd say, how heavy is it? And it's it's a big one. It's really worth a lot of money. And you'd think to yourself, no, I don't want it, thank you, because it has no purpose, actually. The things that really matter, food, water, shelter, companionship, no pain, no fear, they're what matters, and they are what matters to humans and non-humans alike. And I'm just trying to get people to make that connection between that we're all very similar. Every creature on this earth is very similar and deserves respect. So that's the, the blessing that the ultra stage races bring to you. They bring to you great perspective. If you choose to embrace it, you do get people out there, bucket list dump, MGS medal. You get all that sort of person. You're going to get that wherever you go. But it, it can be a very life-changing and life-enhancing experience, which, which I have truly, truly been thankful for. Yeah, I started doing the same like ultra distance stage racing on the mountain bike about 10 years yeah. ago in all of these kind of third world countries for that that exact reason. Like seeing how like again, it's you're in a place of privilege getting to go there, like for fun yeah. to go do a race. And but it still brings you this perspective. And I, I honestly will say guilt whenever you come home. Yeah, that, like you don't have to like you don't burn like you've got someone to pick up your garbage for you and like yeah. you you can just take a shower or you, you have access to warm water like you yeah. can drink out of the just all those things or even like during the pandemic when like the grocery store didn't have stuff it's like we're, we're lucky that we even have a grocery store where like yeah. food is brought in from anywhere that you can access so just having perspective is such a gift and it, it's also a responsibility too Absolutely. I mean, I, and this is another tiny little thing. Back when I was a teenager having my surgeries, my, my dad was in the mining industry, coal mining. And it was at a time when it was being phased out in the UK and um, the miners went on strike a lot to try and fight for their jobs. And um, 
it, my dad was without salary for a year. He was off work, you know, for a year. And um, I remember them, um, some representatives of some organisation coming to the house and saying to my mom, if you can't feed the children, we've set up a soup kitchen for in the town and people said you know oh that must have been so humiliating that must have been awful it might have been for my mum at the time you know um because this is kind of an opulent time like kind of in the 80s when it, I suppose it would be a bit be embarrassing to not be able to feed your children but we've always looked back and thought how blessed were we that we lived in a country where when hard times were found fallen upon there was a soup kitchen. There was a charity shop you could go to. Many countries do not have that. They don't. And I think it's hard. And I'm not berating people in the West. They're just simply not understanding what abject poverty is and how the tiny little things that we do take for granted are a real blessing, which we just overlook every day. And rather than looking at the things that we don't have, thinking that they're going to make us happy, Look at the things that we do have, which should be making us happy on a daily basis. And life is just passing us by. And we're just constantly on this kind of treadmill of desire when you just want to stop and say, hey, get off. Just get off the roundabout, get off the treadmill and stop and look and just embrace all this beauty around you. All these wonderful things that really, really do matter. And some, you know, in the UK, you know, we we, we did become, you know, um, well, a lot of people became absolutely terrified during COVID and frightened to death of dying, but almost, I'm kind of looking for a way of articulating this, but all almost not able to realise why they're living, the reason for living. And that's what I'm trying to do every day. I know why I'm here. I know why I'm alive. And I know what I want to do whilst I'm here. And people say, you really do cram it, Fiona. I mean, you get up at 3.30 in the morning. I'm full on. I mean, I, I, I'm hitting it hard. But, you know, I'm going to be a long time dead. And you realise that you don't have a lot of time on this planet to make a difference, to make a genuine positive difference for the good of others and to truly to do things for others is always so much more of a blessing than to do something for yourself and I kind of when I've done these events and you've got a little I've never actually felt great joy for myself it's been like okay the next thing that I want to do or you know but I felt I've hoped that I've been able to change a, a life or make a difference for for the better somewhere along the line. And that's been the reward of it all. I want to ask you now about like just how you deal with the feelings of wanting to quit. If you even have those feelings, you mentioned that the, in some of these races, like I don't want to use the word pressure because that's the wrong word, but like if, if you end up not finishing the race and people will say, well, that's because she's vegan and that's kind of the antithesis of what you were trying to go for. Or even like when your alarm goes off at three 30 in the morning, like most people, you know, don't want to get up to that alarm or most people like if they're, if their bones are sticking out of their feet and, you know, things are super hard, they, they, they want to give up. So how do you, or like, even if it's easy for you, what advice do you have for people to not give up during difficult things? Well, it's, it's not easy for me. And I'd be allowed to say that I do jump up. Say, oh, it's 25 past three in five minutes. I can get up. Well, you know, um, <laughs> it's not like that at all. What I tend to do honestly and genuinely is I have a list of positives and reasons and thankfulness for, for getting up. So I will think, you know, probably think five things that I'm blessed for that day. I can get up and see the beautiful anim animals. I can get up and I've got 
I feel well enough to go for a run. So rather than looking at, oh, I don't want to get up because it's raining and it's horrible, think of it, I do want to get up because I am lucky to have these things in my life and things to be thankful for. And that's what I try to, it doesn't always work. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a saint, I'm not an angel. I don't, you know, think, oh, you know, I'm not, you know, sort of, you know, I have the, I suffer the same problems as other people, but it is literally trying to swing it around so you're always looking for a positive because it genuinely is pretty much always a positive in there if you can look hard enough to find it and um you know life's too short it's just too short to be you know negative all the time is you know um you know you, you can make a difference and I think always having faith that although you may not overtly have made a difference that day you may well have done as a passing conversation you might have had with someone might have, you know, made them think a little bit or, and that's what I did, you know, with, with, you know, certainly during the races, even the road marathons, you know, when you're pushing hard, when you're on your limit, you tend to think, oh, would I take a shortcut if one was offered? Oh, you know, I might do, <laughs> you know, but you wouldn't, you know, you never would because you, you know, that it's just, no point you know you're not going to be i know people say to me you don't run with a strava you don't run with a garmin don't run with anything like that or we could be cheating and you think well what would be the point of cheating myself you not seem to be getting this you know i know what i'm doing i know what pace i'm running i know i know the distances why would i cheat myself and um yeah i think it's it's you know it is always that burning core in me that i'm not going it, for me i would probably give up but for the animals, I would never give up. And that's honestly it. Yeah, that's that again, coming back to that sense of purpose. Mm. So let's talk yeah. about the animal sanctuary, because I, I bet a lot of people listening have never been to one or aren't even familiar with what that entails. Can you talk about it? Yeah, I mean, the sanctuary was set up, you know, um, 25 years ago, over 25 years ago now. And it is a place of literally sanctuary for animals, animals which have come from previously abused and exploited and um, neglected situations. So I started with small animals, dogs and cats and horses um, that I could have a normal domestic environment. And then when I got the sanctuary with land, you, you taken in animals that have been really, really abused from the food chain. So pigs, sheep, cattle, goats, uh, lots and lots of birds. Um, and it is a place for them to see out their lives in like palliative care, a place where they can be together. Every sanctuary runs slightly differently. For me, I like to keep it as natural as possible. I like the horses and the cattle in large herd groups. I like them in large family groups. When I say family groups, I mean old and young together, male and female. Obviously you don't breed at a sanctuary, but keep it as as near to what they would experience in the natural environment that they should be living in under the remit of the laws and regulations and land available that I've got. So it's a place of peace, a place of tranquility, a place where they can be themselves rather than me anthropomorphizing them and asking them to be what I want them to be, me working around them as they are. And I feel very, very blessed uh, to be able to go amongst them as their provider and their carer, but never as their master. I like them to be in charge of their own destiny as much as they can be, as much as they would in the wild. I mean, you know, horses are herd animals, cows are herd animals. They need to be amongst each other, old and young together, because, you know, the, the old teach the young and the young keep the old active, if you like. But yeah, I, I just, you know, the pigs live in a wood. 
so they can forage. It's just trying to keep it as natural as, as I can and not expecting anything back from, and, and I always asked once, uh, what would you what would you want the animals to say to you if they could talk? And when I say talk, I believe they can talk, but they don't speak a language. They speak in a different way. I would hope that if they were speaking in English to me, the one thing that they wouldn't feel the need to say is thank you, because I'm just giving them what, what their rights. I'm just delivering to them what is rightfully theirs, but it's denied to them through circumstances uh, that humans put in the way you know um they the greedy the exploitation and the fact that they expect animals to behave as they wish them to behave rather than accepting them on their own terms and animals are so clever and we could i think we, we could learn from them it, certainly rather than asking them to adapt to what what we behave like we should be learning from them but we're all very very similar and that's back to the point of you know the, the, the multi-stage races or the races that you've done i mean when you arrive in these situations of what we would see as you know oh it's it's terrible it's going to be a week or two weeks like this and there's going to be no water no showers no clean clothes and then after a while you suddenly realize that those things don't really matter what matter is you know friendship and water, food, shelter, safety, and no fear. And that's what you hope to provide at the sanctuary for the animals. What other kind of animals do you have there? What kind of animals? Well, um, I have um, mainly horses, cows, pigs, sheep, goats, dogs, cats, any number of birds that you can care to mention, swans, geese, chickens, ducks. Um, I don't do reptiles. I think you could, I don't don't understand reptiles at all so i don't have uh, anything like that but um and they all live basically in in family groups or herd groups as i call them so yeah we've we've got a big 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 old project going on here and it's really really sad actually um to see you learn from the animals and you i think you probably like yesterday i lost one of the elderly highland cattle they're the ones with the enormous great big horns and um to see the others grieving was um it's, it was humbling actually i found him in the field he died in the night and the others were just standing around kind of protecting and looking at him and there are some quite young calves in there they came to me um i didn't breed them here they were, came with their, their mums and they were just standing very quietly they understood what had happened they understood that bingo had died and it made me realize the horrible exploitation again right came to the forefront of my mind of how we treat these poor beautiful souls in the um the food chain and the, the fears that they must feel and we deny them the rights that are, it's just horrendous that we take away their ability to be have emotions to form bonds with each other it's appalling. And I know, I know when um, Keegan came to make the film, uh, my film, Running for Good, um, he said that um, very often he was asked what was the most traumatic part of filming Cowspiracy. And he said it wasn't necessarily what people expected. It was seeing the mother cows being kept very near to the calves, but not being able to nurture them, not being able to feel them, not being able to, to be next to them. That, that was just the most horrible thing. He said, not not the killing, the actual killing of animals, the torture of them almost by taking away their ability to have their natural emotions and behaviours. And um, yeah, it's it's just just a cruel world we live in. 
so having the sanctuary is just um it's it's a very small way of helping a very few animals but the main thing is is promoting for me veganism and stopping the abuse altogether stopping the need for sanctuaries if you like in the 21st century it saddens me that we still need sanctuaries that we're still not moved on from that um hopefully we are doing now um i know in the uk certainly veganism has exploded in the last few years uh, and there is a lot of debate whether it's for the wrong or right reasons it's very commercial um, there is a lot of processed food which necessarily isn't individually as healthy for, for people as they think but for me I have to weigh it up and think if it helps the animals it's cool by me because you know they need help and we, we need to address the way we live our lives and I think that if we can take away humans exploitation of other species we might become a little bit more aware of each other and our own starts not constantly looking at our differences but celebrating our similarities that's what we need to do well thanks so much for sharing your passion and your truth and your wisdom with all of us and you're definitely an inspiring person for me. And I know that everybody listening is going to be really like connected, feel really connected to you and just excited about your journey and how it can help them do more good in their lives too. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's what it's all about doing a little bit of good and having faith that we are making a difference together. We can make a difference. So where can people find um, the documentary and just more information about you and even the sanctuary? Well, uh, this is where I get all confused because I'm not really good. Uh, Running for Good is on Amazon Prime, I believe. People say they've seen it on Netflix. I'm not sure. I think it's on Amazon. And uh, the sanctuary is towerhillstables.com. And uh, you get all confused here. And if you just search Fiona Oates on Instagram or uh, Tower Hill Stables on Instagram, uh, then you will find me. Or just Google search Fiona Oates or Google search Tower Stables Animal Sanctuary because I am a bit of a technophobe. I don't really have much to do with, with social media. And it's not necessarily in my nature to um, promote myself, if you, if you get my drift. But um, you'll find me and I'll be very, 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 very welcome to... Um, you know getting back to you if anybody wants any advice about anything you know or, or in, interested in the sanctuary or the running i'm always happy to help people and because that's what it's all about helping each other um so yeah i lurk on the internet somewhere <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode. Make sure you share the show with your friends if you are finding value in it and you think that others will find value as well. And also, if you want to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps the show find others. It helps podcast players recommend us so that other people can find the show in a sea of many, 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 many podcasts out there. And I am so grateful that you listen to the show, that you're part of my community when you have so many choices. And I strive to bring you the best information and the best guests so that you feel fulfilled and you're getting value every single time that you listen. If you want more, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter, sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, where I talk about things like mindset, motivation, habits, productivity, why we do what we do. I like to go deep into one topic per week. So you can do that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And I would love to continue this conversation with you over there. And last, thanks to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon and PayPal with your donations. You can do that at patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show, or you can go to sonyalooney.com slash podcasts 
to find the PayPal link. All of those funds go to paying my team, who, which is Roma, who is the audio producer of this show, who has been doing this since episode one. That is for five years, folks. So that's a really long time. And also Rebecca, who makes sure that the show notes are clean and nice and that the show gets uploaded on time, which has been a massive help, especially after having a baby. And she had a baby not too long ago, too. I love you guys, and I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.